Slate Spoiler Specials are brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER2. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is a Slate Spoiler Special on Oz the Great and Powerful, the new Wizard of Oz prequel directed by Sam Raimi. Joining me in the studio to talk Oz is Forrest Wickman. Hey, Forrest. Hey, Dana. You are a Slate staff writer, mm-hmm. and you saw Oz the Great and Powerful by my side last night. Right, although actually not directly by my side, because uh, right by me was John Swansburg, Slate's uh, editor, who um, was listening to watching the entire thing while listening to Dark Side of the Moon, hoping to write about that experience. <laughs> yeah, he's doing a journalistic experiment where he's trying to do the Pink Floyd Wizard of Oz right. sync up with the new Wizard of Oz, so right. we'll see what kind of... To mixed results from what... I've heard so far. Yeah, it sounded like he could not wait to turn that thing off. And then when he turned it off, he wasn't much happier with what the movie had to, did to show yeah, either. Yeah. So before we get into spoiling, I just want to know overall, would you recommend this movie or not? I would faintly. I mean, if you are looking for a family movie, I think this is uh, better than a lot of the other fairy tale remakes that have come out, which actually that's one thing that really struck me as soon as I sat down. I was thinking of You mentioned you said it's an, a Wizard of Oz prequel. Although technically it is totally not, according to Disney, a Wizard of Oz prequel because they don't own the rights to the original Wizard of Oz movie. So this is actually a fairy tale adaptation as far as they're concerned. And it does feel like that sometimes. It seems to me more like I did not know that going in, the MGM-Disney dispute and the fact that since the original Wizard of Oz is an MGM movie and Disney doesn't own the rights, they aren't allowed to directly reference the movie, right? And they have to instead go back to the books, the L. Frank Baum books, and and draw their inspiration from there. I mean, it seems like a lot of legal pussyfooting to me because there are obvious, obvious visual and dialogue references to the Wizard of Oz constantly throughout the movie. But I guess there were just a lot of things they couldn't do. They weren't allowed to mention Dorothy or show the ruby slippers. The yellow brick road had to be presented differently. Apparently, the witch had to be a slightly different of green than Margaret right. Hamilton is. So, you know, the whole idea was to make this parallel Oz universe that wasn't quite, wouldn't quite tie into the 1939 original. Yeah, there's this very funny line that I think stood out to both of us uh, when one of the Wicked Witches, uh, played by Mila, Mila Kunis, says something like, I'll get you my pretty one. <laughs> right. Which, of course, makes it a totally different line that has nothing to do with the original movie. Yeah, so I think I went into this with fairly high expectations given, I mean, given the complete absurdity of trying to make a prequel to The Wizard of Oz, right? I mean, obviously we know that this movie is not going to ascend to those kind of, you know, cinematic heights. But it sort of seemed like it could be a fun experiment and maybe sort of a dark twist on The the Wizard of Oz tale, especially with Sam Raimi directing, right. who is really a master, I think, of balancing horror and comedy. And, uh, and so, based on those expectations, I'd say I was pretty disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, I think it may have been a matter of expectations. I think you, uh, as a good critic, avoid all marketing. I, as a culture blogger, am immersed in marketing all the time. And I thought the trailers for this were really bad. And it was somewhat, it was better than I expected from the trailers, but worse than I expected, given that it's a, the latest Sam Raimi movie. I mean, as far as the recommendation as a family movie, I'm not sure, as a person with a seven-year-old, that I would go down that road exactly. I was saying to Swansburg as we were coming out, what age of kid would this movie be marketed for exactly? It seems like there's sort of like a few months in between nine and nine and a half where it would be not too scary, you know, sort of not too overwhelming in the the, the visual, like the, the graphic violence. There's not graphic violence, but there's... No. Um, but there's a lot of really scary scenes. I mean, there's, there's a, a lot there's of cackling witches. And, yeah, and there's a moment with a rich... Uh, a, a 
reveal of a witch later on that's way too convoluted to explain right now, but where a witch appears and looks almost exactly like the crazy gypsy woman from Drag Me to Hell, and it's terrifying. But I, I think I like that aspect. I, I'm endorsing it as a family movie as somebody who does not have any children to protect, and I think if I had kids, I might be somewhat more protective, but I do like family movies that are legitimately are not afraid to scare kids as long as they're I agree but, but the corollary I wasn't quite finished with my okay. my critique of why this is not quite a family movie is that it's got that scary stuff which I think an older kid could handle but then it also has a lot of really babyish cloying things that that yeah. kid would probably be embarrassed to be dragged to a movie about right like the little China girl who we'll get into later and stuff like that she's a cool special effect actually but it's the right. kind of thing that I think a kid who would want to see some of the scarier stuff would probably say that's too, that's too babyish for me yeah I do think this is a movie that tries to appeal to everyone and doesn't totally succeed i don't think quite with anyone it doesn't feel like a sam raimi to me it doesn't feel like a sam raimi movie to me as much as a tim burton movie there's a lot of well danny elfman did the music the music is extremely tim burtonian and you know just really a lot of the kind of um sort of goth trappings that he places around the wizard of oz universe kind of invoke tim burton to me so if you like big tim burton extravaganzas with lots of special effects and lots of danny elfman score this this has that feeling a little bit yeah i mean i didn't i didn't even realize that was an elfman score and I, i that must be because they're trying to recreate the success of alice in wonderland which was a huge worldwide hit so it the the tim burtonianess the tim burtonianess as you said uh was probably not this is also of course 3d as alice in wonderland is don't get me wrong this is way better than alice in wonderland the 3d looks better and crisper and it's a more watchable movie but it's it's not something i would i would flock and send people to yeah and if you don't like it when 3d movies throw stuff at the screen you will not like this movie. It has more of that than any movie I can That's true. Let's enumerate some of the things that are thrown at us during the course of the movie. Gold coins, definitely shower in Wooden our Wooden stakes. Yeah, the gold coins over and over and over again, which is not cool at all. There's nothing novel about having gold coins fly at you. <laughs> hey, speak for yourself. I'd love to have gold coins <laughs> fly true. at me in real That's life. True. <laughs> so let's talk our way through what happens in this movie. So a big, big problem for me was the principal casting of James Franco as yeah. the young Wizard of Oz. So essentially we have to imagine that he's the young Frank Morgan, right? He's going to grow up to be the bumbling old wizard that Frank Morgan is in the original movie. He doesn't make any attempt, which is fine, but he doesn't make any attempt to impersonate Frank Morgan or to try no. to try to create something that would be a continuity with that character. He does his own thing, which is fine, but I just didn't think that he had the charisma to play the, the con man that he has to be. Essentially, this is one of those characters that's a trickster, a con man, someone whose values are completely in the wrong place for three quarters of the movie, and then you have to do a big turn on a dime or on a gold coin at the end right. and suddenly fall in love with him. And it's not every actor who can carry that off. I think I'm more of a Franco fan than you, but I think he's really miscast. I'm a big Franco fan, but I agree. I mean, he was the biggest problem I had with this movie. You said something about him attempting to do something. I'm not sure he attempted to do anything throughout all this. He just seemed to be on autopilot for me. Um, it's I I would best characterize this as sort of a Harrison Ford role, like a Han Solo role, where, he, where he's supposed to be this selfish rogue and also like deliver some lines with comedic timing. And I don't think either of those things are things that Franco is good at. Um, he's been good at times at playing like a stoner in the past at Pineapple, in Pineapple Express. Uh, but th- he's still doing all a lot of that same sort of James Franco squinting in this, and it's not appealing in a movie this colorful. 
Well, I'm going to make my basic case for James Franco. I think he is a funny comedian when he's given good lines to say. I think he's amazing in Freaks and Geeks. He's great in Pineapple Express. I think he's one of those guys like Brad Pitt who's better when he's not playing the straight leading man. And unfortunately, he keeps kind of getting those roles because this is also a romantic leading role, right? And it's about him winning over. Well, ultimately, I guess Glinda the Good Witch sort of ends up as his mm-hmm. his girl, right? But um, but Michelle Williams plays two different roles, one in the black and white universe that begins right. the movie, Wizard of Oz style, and one in the color universe when he gets to Oz. I believe she's supposed to be Dorothy Gale's mother, right? At, oh, at the really? beginning. Because, well, we're not allowed to mention Dorothy, this being a, a Disney production and not MGM. Dorothy's never well, directly Dorothy's mentioned. in the book. She's I not guess. born yet. But, yeah. but, but this woman clad in gingham, played by Michelle Williams, goes to, to visit the wizard in his, um, in his, what is he in? Like a caravan. He's in some sort of traveling circus caravan. He's a magician. And, uh, and she mentioned something about, I'm going to marry John Gale. So I assume that that okay. ends up being the, that, the parents of, of Dorothy Gale later on. There's only two characters, actually, in this that are picked up from the black and white universe to the color universe that yeah. I noticed. And that seemed like a wasted opportunity on Raimi's part. Because, of course, that's a great thing about the original right. is the way that those characters transform. Right. Yeah, that was very confusing to me. The other character like that is Zach Braff, who plays uh, the magicians. He actually calls him my, my monkey. Like, he's his gopher. Uh, his James, uh, Zach Braff is James Franco's gopher assistant and he in the Oz world turns out to be this monkey bellhop um, you know monkey monkeys make for cheap jokes and you don't get a lot better than that here <laughs> yeah the, well the monkey bellhop is essentially it's the uh, it's the sidekick right the, the put upon sidekick yeah. character that we've seen in so many movies I just I felt nothing about that relationship between those right. two and this movie also sort of felt the need as, as James Franco's Oz character his name is also Oz right mm-hmm. Oscar Oz for short as he goes down the yellow brick road, he has to be joined by various people because Dorothy was joined. But it just seems like the joiners are very random. One of the joiners is this is this flying bellhop monkey right. um, voiced by Zach Braff. And then there's this little China doll girl right. that they meet along the way. So they go to this world um, within Oz, one of the little you know communities within Oz that's all completely made of China. That may be something from the books. Maybe if listeners know what book this is referencing, I'd, I'd love to know. But they go to this kind of beautifully designed world where all the houses are these little China teapots and the people that live inside are China too. They rescue this little broken china girl and she comes along on the rest of the way too and even though she was awesomely animated i loved how she she looked and moved and the whole idea of like a a universe of china people was kind of interesting the way she was used was just so cloying she really was just the you know the sweet little big-eyed girl who was thrown in whenever you needed your heartstrings pulled i think that the movie definitely i mean maybe it just tried to have it both ways but i do think the movie undermined that a little bit too there's a funny reveal I thought it was funny anyways, where uh, the little China girl, as she's called, I think, um, pulls out a knife, like a shiv out of nowhere. And she said, you know, she implies something like, oh, why wouldn't you expect that? Right. I'm so China. I, think, I have to protect myself. Yeah. So Raimi, he plays with those things a little bit. I did like the China doll city. Um, there is some whimsy in there. Well, then there's really great visual design. And the mm-hmm. moments that you, you do sort of let yourself be carried away are when he's first discovering the, the world of Oz. There's a really right. beautiful moment where he's moving through this kind of crystal universe where these mm-hmm. crystal flowers are, are opening up. And it's very, I mean, it basically is just sort of, you know, a stoner's delight. It's just sort of there yeah. to look gorgeous. It doesn't really serve any role at all. And there's not really even, even any reaction to it on the part of yeah. the characters. But it's great design. Yeah, I have no idea why that was in there, but I loved it. I'll, uh, one other fun aspect of that is, you know, during all these reveals in Oz, the score also uh, does a lot of like Mickey Mousing with what with whatever's going on on screen. Uh, so, like when a flower opens up, the score will have some sort of uh, you know clarinet, clarinet do like a scale running up, and that's fun. That's it's old fashioned. This movie doesn't seem to know exactly what its position is in relation to the past. Sometimes it seems deliberately old fashioned and. 
Sometimes not at all, but I think that the black and white part does seem more old fashioned, and that makes yeah. sense in a way. The black and white part is actually framed to look like even the grain of the film. It looks like an old movie from the '30s. The black and white has that quality, and as long as we're talking design, it also has a great um, credit sequence, opening yeah. credit sequence. This movie that it was very promising. I was really excited about right. where we were going to go. But as long as we're talking about the look and the design and the special effects, how did you, what did you think about the tornado scene and how that was represented? Uh, it was cool. There's this one moment that makes zero sense, as I'm no meteorologist, but uh, where uh, all of a sudden gravity just ceases to exist in the eye of the tornado. That was cool. There was a little too much of, again, throwing stuff at the camera. Um, but to me, as soon as they got to Oz, things got a lot better. Um, the idea of investigating what happens in the tornado is sort of interesting in the sense right. that the original does posit this this essentially portal, you know, like a magic <laughs> portal that the house somehow goes through. So the idea that we now have special effects where you could sort of, you know, imagine and envision and create what would go on inside that portal is, is kind of neat. Yeah. Um, All right, Boris, let me stop you for just a moment there for a word from our sponsor. The Slate Spoiler Special is delighted to be sponsored by Shutterstock.com. With over 700,000 high-quality video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code SPOILER2. At Shutterstock.com, you'll find the perfect video for your next creative project, whether it's a website, an ad, a multimedia presentation, or any kind of film project. They have over 700,000 high-quality stock video clips, 2D animations, and 3D motion graphics. They source their video clips from around the world and put them at your fingertips, with over 10,000 new video clips each week. So every time you visit, you'll find something new. You can try Shutterstock today by signing up for a free account, no credit card needed. Once you decide to purchase, use offer code SPOILER2 and new accounts will receive 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com, and again, for 30% off new accounts, just use the offer code SPOILER2. The Spoiler Special thanks Shutterstock for their support. As you mentioned, when he gets to Oz, he starts to meet a, a series of people. And uh, you, so you meet the China doll and you meet the monkey. And at that point, I was sort of assuming that we would uh, meet a third person, that it would be that structure like the original movie. But it's not. What you find out is that really it's going to be a lot more about the witches. There are three of them. The first one that Oz meets is Theodora, who's played by Mila Kunis. Um, who, when uh, they first meet, sort of, I guess, sparks fly, goes very, very quickly, and Theodora's in love with him. And somehow James Franco is not excited to be with Mila Kunis. Well, he's a womanizer. It's already been established, right, right, that he goes through women like crazy. I still found that a little hard to relate to. Like what man in his right right mind would want to rule (laughs) Oz with Mila Kunis. Yeah. Um, which sets so, and then uh, Theodora Mila Kunis takes him back to the Emerald City, which is where he meets another witch, Evanora, played by Rachel Weiss, who's the sister of Theodora, right. right? And who, if we fast forward into 1939 world, must be the person who's crushed under the house. Yes, right, right. Um, and although we never find out how she got those stockings, which is really the only thing we know about. The Wicked Witch. Um, it doesn't really go with the Rachel Weisz style that she would wear candy-striped yeah. stockings, but maybe she got there a few years later. Right, right. What did you think of Rachel Weisz as the, the I loved her in this. Witches? To me, she was one of the best things. I thought Mila Kunis was totally boring. Um, I've liked her in some roles in the past, uh, but she was easily the weakest of the witches to me. Did you feel that way? Yeah, I agree. But that's because she was up against some tough competition. Yeah, I mean, oh, Michelle absolutely. Williams and Rachel Weisz are Heavyweights. They're pretty much, you know, they outclassed this movie by many degrees. Yeah. So, yeah, Rachel Weisz was great in that role, but all she 
she had to do was icily stalk around looking gorgeous and being evil. Right. Although at first they have a little bit of deceit because uh, of, of sort of double-facedness because they are telling Oz that he needs to kill the Wicked Witch and that the Wicked Witch is out there and he needs to break her wand. So uh, James Franco goes out and he meets a woman cloaked in black and it turns out to be Michelle Williams who plays Glenda the Good Witch and actually she is the Good Witch. Um, and reveals to him that he needs to go back and kill those other women who are the the real wicked witches. There's also a psychodrama between the two sisters that becomes really important later on where Mila Kunis, who's the innocent, you know, the the, the duped of the two witches who believes that her sister is good, um, is transformed, not just morally but physically right there's a moment that her sister makes her take a bite of this green apple and she turns green she turns to whatever shade of green (laughs) disney was legally allowed to make her turn to and she starts to be the witch that we know from the old movie there is a cool uh special effect right before that where basically she's turned by her own uh jealousy and her own sorrow over losing oz for some reason and uh she starts crying and uh the tears burn her skin because of course she is that's the moment when you realize that she is the wicked witch that um, later on, you know, Dorothy and Toto will combine to kill. Right. That water is the thing that's going to eventually bring her down. So having set all this up, I mean, there's so many twists in there. We don't need to get into it all, but I want to get into the big conflagration at the end and and the the big battle between essentially the army, the very ragtag army of sweet Oz denizens that that, um, the Wizard of Oz gets together versus the the Winkies, as they're called, right? They were called that in the original movie, too, I think, the the Queen's soldiers and her Mm -hmm. flying monkeys, here rendered as baboons, again, I guess, for legal reasons. So that showdown is obviously one of those historic showdowns where one side has all the might and the other side has all the goodness. Right. And uh, and it's supposed to be a very satisfying ending, especially because it's the moment that we realize that the Oz character, the James Franco character, isn't just in it for the gold and the prestige of being the Wizard of Oz that's been offered to him. He's been presented all along as somebody who's basically in it for the room full of gold, right? And at the end, we finally see him take a stand and do something meaningful. Uh, to you, I think this worked better for you than for me, but to me, the, the ending of this movie, I had, it had completely lost me by the big battle scene. Yeah, there, there are two things about this that worked for me. So part of what makes it hard for them to take out, uh, what part of what makes it hard for these uh, nice little denizens to take uh, out all of the evil armies descending upon them is they can't kill I can't remember if they just choose not to or they're not able to but so they have to do it entirely through artifice so basically James Franco has said earlier that he uh, admires Harry Houdini and Thomas Edison and wants to be a great man like them so they come up with all of their these contraptions where they're using cinema projectors to make him look you know great and powerful and uh, and they use scarecrows as sort of a decoy army. Not um, living scarecrows like Ray Bolger, but right. like actual stuffed dolls yeah. that they make, right? Right. Um, and and then at the end, the, the other uh, turn is that, you know, James Franco has been saying the whole movie that he wants to be a great man like Harry Houdini and Thomas Edison combined. And uh, he shows himself to be a good man. And that's better. And that was, that was sweet. I went with that. So for you, this did add up to more than a big, overblown Tim Burton-style spectacle. There was some moment that you were moved and something that you took away. Yeah, I was really only at the end. and I, I can't totally trust myself because there was also that person that for the first 45 minutes was really bored. Uh, but I left the theater happy for what, what that's worth. Um, another one last thing I did really like about it was uh, Michelle Williams's portrayal of The Good Witch, which is the, just this really great imagining of sort of quiet, 
power where she's able to use like bubbles and uh like waves of of froth to take out horrible big armies and her her portrayal her performance is just like that too where she plays like very smiley and stuff but there's this uh quiet strength beneath that beneath that which i thought was interesting yeah it's something that's very hard to play basically right Mm -hmm. you're a beautiful radiant sweet kind good person what could be more boring than that but she actually infuses something really interesting into it i like her in the very first part and that you only see her briefly but in the black Mm -hmm. and white segment she actually i think is deliberately doing something sort of period with her voice there and with her acting style and she really does seem like someone you would see in tcm on a someone you would see on TCM in an old movie. It seems like she's kind of working that that old Hollywood angle. And less so in the second half, you know, as as things get more special effectsy and she doesn't have as much chance to just plain old act, but I thought she was really great in that early scene with James Franco. Well, given that this was sort of a surprising project for Sam Raimi, what do you think it was about it that appealed to him? Why did he want to make a Wizard of Oz prequel? I th- I'm sure he loves the original movie because how could you not? So he may have wanted to riff on that even if he was not uh, totally allowed to. And I, and there is this aspect of this movie that is about the power the power of uh, the of, of artifice and of, of the movies in some some extent. It is ultimately uh, a movie basically that saves all of Oz. And so he may have uh, connected with that. That's something that we've probably gotten way too much of uh, in the last few years between movies like The Artist and Hugo and, and so on. Uh, but I can't help but enjoy it a little bit. See, to me, it just seems almost suicidal to take on something like this. I feel like I can hardly imagine what director would be able to take this material and do something new with it and really feel like maybe they haven't contributed an actual prequel to the Oz universe that you need to see in order to see The Wizard of Oz, but that they've taken this landmark piece of filmmaking and really done some sort of homage to it or, or done honor to it or been worthy of it. I don't know. It just, it just seems like any filmmaker who tries to do that is setting themselves up to be negatively compared. And here we are negatively comparing him. Yeah, certainly it was really hard to watch the movie and not compare it to the original. We've done that several times. Uh, and it just does not hold up if you have not watched. As much as I liked this movie, ultimately, just barely, uh, if you have not watched the original Wizard of Oz in the last two months go and watch it again because <laughs> it is one of the greatest movies of all time. Yeah, it's true. It is conceivable that there are people who haven't seen The Wizard of Oz since their childhood and those people should absolutely avoid this movie and go see that one again. Absolutely. Well, Forrest, thank you so much for coming in to spoil The Great and Powerful Oz with me. Thanks for having me on. Our producer is Chris Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.